Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Froke. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigalski. And today, we have the first ever round three with Bilal, the one and only king of death to fluff. Nick, why should people listen? Armand, I used to take pride in being a helpful salesperson. I would love to put together a proposal for you. It would be my pleasure to show every single member of your team a one-on-one demo in the next month. But... It turns out we shouldn't be helpful anymore, and Bilal teaches us why. Three, 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 three. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto-reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press Command-H, and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two-day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with Rocket Reach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. All right, Bilal, welcome back for the third time to 30 Minutes to President's Club. I hope that you know by now we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. 
All right. So number one, loss aversion over gains. This is prospect theory. It actually won a, a, a Nobel Prize in economics years ago. And you have to drill this into your head as a seller. Your buyers are going to be motivated by the fear of loss, not the pleasure of gain. So you'll commonly see in like sales messaging, some seller being like, you know, we help generate 300% ROI for our customers. And it's like, that's not what they care about. What if they didn't get that 300% ROI? What is the opportunity cost of sticking with the status quo? So flip it on its head and talk about what you stand to lose, not the time you've spent, you can gain or, or the money that you could save, but the money you could be wasting if you do it this way instead of the way we offer. So get that loss aversion into your messaging. Beautiful. What's number two below? The number two is about emotionally charging messaging. So this ties very well with number one. So uh, really great copy uses certain words that like trigger the limbic brain of your buyer and get them kind of emotionally involved. And you'll see like restaurants doing this when they talk about, for example, like sizzling fajita poppers. And it's like, there's a couple action words in there that you're like, oh, sizzling like brings that idea of that, that plate being hot and delicious. Or like, they don't just say it's like, fudge, but they call like creamy hot fudge. And you're like, oh, the creamy part. Yeah, that's, I'm into that. That's my thing. So there's sort of um, action words, you need them in, in your prospecting as well as a seller. So here's an example. If you're going to do loss aversion and you're going to say something like CFOs typically overspend on interchange fees when they're dealing with um, credit card processing, instead of saying that, yeah, it's a loss aversion statement. It's certainly better than saying we can help you save on your interchange fees. Let's emotionally charge it. CFOs get pissed off when they find out they're spending up to 30% more than they need to on interchange fees. That's emotionally charged. That word pissed off is now getting in there. And we all know what it's like to be pissed off about overspending. So now you can emotionally charge your messaging when you start talking about loss aversion and you're going to see response rates go up because that's the sort of stuff people respond to. Beautiful. Round us out. Give me a sizzling tip for number three. Yeah. So number three is this idea about social bids. Okay. So this comes from the Gottman Institute and John Gottman is a legend. He was the first one to ever pioneer an actual statistical model to determine if people are going to stay married or not. And he was so good at this that he was able to sit with a couple for less than five minutes and with 92% accuracy, tell them if they were going to stay married or not. That's how good he was at it. And one of the pioneers of this statistical model was something called social bids. When we reach out and try to make an offer to somebody and the likelihood of that person responding, showing reciprocity to that offer and returning in kind. So here's the thing. We don't get taught this in sales, but this is a selling superpower. You can do this too when dealing with your buyers. Now, social bidding is very different between obviously a husband and a wife or a married couple, but when you do it in a sales process, here are the things that you can do social bids on. Pricing, competition, implementation, and product shortcomings. These are things that your buyers are expecting you not to give them, that they're going to have to you know, pull it out of you. Now, if you offer that freely and openly, you're unexpectedly delighting your buyer with information that they never saw coming from you because sellers don't talk about those things. 
that's really powerful. And what you're going to trigger is a very fun, fundamental psychology principle of reciprocity. When you offer information freely and openly, they feel compelled to share information too. I've been doing this for years and I can tell you guys, I've had literally my buyer reading to me from their Slack, a thread with some decision maker, because I openly shared information about pricing or competition. And they're telling me, wow, that had just come up. Here's what somebody else had shared with me. I could have not gotten that question, no matter how many onion layer questioning things I did or, you know, discovery hacks that I did. I got it because I triggered the law of reciprocity in my buyer. And so below, I've probably used the delighting your buyers tactic more than possibly any other tactic that I've ever heard on 30 MPC giving price when they actually ask for it, saying, hey, this is the toughest part of implementation. The one place where I sometimes have a hard time is I have some really good competitors and I know exactly where to hit them. And I'm so tempted to just be like, look, they're good here, but we are way better here. And so what is a better way to handle competitors without throwing mud it's, or sounding it's like a judo. jerk? So uh, one of the best things you could do, for example, is like higher competition prices right? So if they do something different than you do, if they talk about something very specific that your product doesn't, you lean in on that and be like, this is where they focus. They think this is how to solve that problem. We believe in a fundamentally different approach, right? And you create a fork in the road, road and force your buyer to decide which side of this issue do they think is right for them? So a classic example of this was when I was selling session replay, we had a competitor that was really, really heavy in AI. Our product did not have AI, it just did machine learning. And the argument that I would make was this AI applies generically to every single type of customer that they have, whether you're an e-commerce company, whether you're a SaaS product, you get the same generic out of the box AI, and it's not designed to learn. Instead of going that route, we did a machine learning algorithm that actually looks at your data and changes based on the behavior, but doesn't apply any AI analytics to it. And I would tell people, I'm like, which do you think is better for your business? Because each has their pros and cons. And now everything I said was verifiable because all of my competitors like marketing and sales messaging and decks and all that stuff were all built around this AI argument. So I sounded really informed and like I knew what I was talking about and it made my buyer pick a lane. And once I knew where their mindset was at, that made me decide whether they're actually really a buyer if they're a prospect, right? Are they just window shopping? They're not sure yet? Or have they really deeply thought about the problems that they have and see a path on how they can fix it? Because that's not my job, right? Like, I, you know, at the end of the day, my buyer needs to come with the willingness to change themselves. I can't, I can't do that for them. So I want to pull that out of them and be like, do you really have a desire to change? And do you think the change should be this or that? Well, what you're doing in that scenario is you're saying, hey, there's two ways to solve this problem, but the two different paths are fundamentally different. And what happens is you're no longer competing with this person. You're saying, let's figure out which way is right for you. And if ours is it, like we're the best path there. Can you talk about that sort of like understanding their willingness to change piece? Because I know a lot of salespeople who waste a lot of time on buyers who are just window shopping and they end up neglecting deals that could have been real deals, but they fail to recognize which was which. So the willingness to change piece comes in the fact that when people buy, they typically do not buy in isolation. They try to build consensus. And in that consensus building, they try to take in different people's opinion. They want to piss someone off. 
right? Another thing that people typically do when they buy is they not only think about their their own goals, but they think about their own like self-worth. Like, will this make me look better? Will this alienate people that I work with? Will people respect me more if I make this decision? So that's always a big piece of any purchase. And, and again, where does that get factored into Bant or Medic or MedPick? It doesn't exist, right? There's no field for that in Salesforce. But that's something you got to be thinking about, the politics and how it works for your buyer when they're making a decision like this. And then another big piece of it too comes down to the fact that no purchase is going to get made unless your buyer can pull together the resources necessary to make it work, right? Like you can't will the budget for them. You can't sit there and like this dream that you can, um, you know, get in front of the decision buying committee and just convince them. It's their job to do that. It, they are the hero, not you. And you have to be Merlin giving them the magic sword to go slay the dragons, not trying to be the hero yourself. So as you do this in the sales cycle, you pressure test these moments of willingness to change. Like, would you be willing to bring in others on the next meeting to talk about this? Do you have in mind a set of people that you plan to share the documentation with that's going to help move this forward? Are you specific on a critical event? That's the deciding point on when we're going to make this decision. Are you kind of like, oh, I don't know, we can, I guess we could do this this year, or we can also do this in Q1 next year. And it's like, that's not a very firm willingness to change, right? So you can assess some of this out, but in order to do so, you can't be the helpful seller. So the helpful seller is the one that says things like, oh, uh, I'd, I'd love to follow up with an email with you in, in two months time and see how things are going. I wanted to circle back with you and see how things are going you know, any updates that you can share, trying to be this helpful seller. Oh, I can totally provide the documentation for you for these sort of things. Like, no, you don't want to do that unless they're serious about buying. <laughs> you know, you know it, I know it. Say that, tell them that. You know, Nick, I honestly, the last thing I want to do is write an email that you're not going to read. You know, when you mentioned right now that you're not sure about the critical event for this purchase, whether it could be this year or next, next year in Q1, that makes me think that maybe there's some discussions that you should probably have internally before we get into anything too deep. Would you rather do that first? And that way it could spare me sending an email you're not going to read and me having to write it. Now I'm like making you tell me if you really do have that willingness to change. Because I'm telling you, I don't want to be a part of this if you don't. I'm totally okay. You're not going to hurt my feelings, but please don't think I'm interested in selling you if you're not ready to buy. I don't have any intention to do so. Below, I sort of understand the consensus thing. Like if they're not pulling other people into the evaluation or there's not other people who are looking at this initiative that you probably don't have a deal. But I'm kind of curious, you talked about like the perception of their own self-worth, like what's in it for me if we make this initiative happen? How do you start to pressure test that if they've actually been considering that? Because I imagine if someone isn't, you probably don't have a deal. This That's actually a really good question, Nick, because this, so this comes up, okay, so if we go back to social bidding, so if you're social bidding and you're doing it right, you're telling them about pricing, you're telling them about competition, you're telling them about implementation, you're telling them about your sh product shortcomings. In the first meeting, you're setting that tone of how the relationship will be, and you're getting the reciprocity from them. Typically, what happens is when I do it successfully, 
my buyer shares with me a very emotionally charged story. I'll give you an example of what happened recently. I'm doing my social bidding just as described. And somewhere at the end of the call, the VP of sales tells me, you know what? I got a particular person in mind. I asked him, who's that person? What's their name? And just for the sake of it, they said their name is Tom. I'm like, okay, tell me about Tom, right? And he's like, Tom started, I really like him. I think he's great, okay? I asked him yesterday, hey man, just between you and I, really, how long did it take you to feel fully comfortable with what we sell, who we sell to, and all that sort of stuff? And he told me, probably last week. He's been at the company for six months, and only as of last week did he really finally feel comfortable with what they were doing. And that VP of sale felt like that was a real loss. Like, why did it take us so long to equip this person who I like, who I think can do the job, who has done an admiral job throughout their time at the company already? And I think that they can be a big part of what we're going to do moving forward. It took them six months just to get comfortable. So, my buyer's telling me this story. And what I'm hearing, is that personal value to them. They're buying my product to solve something that they feel is a deficiency in their leadership. I'm not equipping the people that I care about on my team to be successful. That's what I'm hearing. That's perfect. That's a personal motivation. Now I see that there's a real willingness to change because I'm going to you know, dig the dagger on that. If he ghosts me at any point in time, which he won't, I know he won't because the fact that he, he returned my bids with that bid, that kind of information tells me that he's engaged. That's something I'm going to use to the sales process. I'm going to go back to Tom. The ROI sheets and calculators, the, the unique selling propositions, the, all that stuff is going to be secondary to the next Tom's success. That's what's going to win me the deal. Because that's a relationship that that VP of sale cares about deeply, right? So that's what it sounds like when you get that out of them. And that's how you know you have willingness to change. When they start telling you those sort of things that transcend the normal spreadsheet stuff. So Bilal, when I'm talking about things that are tough, like people will ask me, I've gone through HR implementations. You've got to integrate with all my systems. Like, I really want to know what I'm in for. The tough part is I know my competitors are probably promising four weeks, and I know it's going to take me at least 10. How do I soften the blow or deliver it in a way that doesn't just sound like implementation sucks, you're going to have to deal with it? Well, so implementation is, again, one of those things that you can pressure test the willingness to change. So the, the beauty of this is every social bid category, again, it was, it was pricing, competition, implementation, and product shortcomings are pressure testing willingness to change. So if I'm being really open, and, and it, that might be how I say it, right? I might be like, look, my competition typically can do this in four weeks. I know this because I'm an experienced seller. I know my competition. We take 10. Here's why. First of all, let me explain to you why. It's because of this. We do something different than them. That's why there's an extended period. Let me just, before I even continue, thoughts on that. Is that is that for you like something you find you have the resources for internally? Or is that right off the bat a deal breaker? And now I'm making you share with me your willingness to change. No, we don't have the resources for that. Or it might depend. I mean, I like what you guys do. So it might take longer, but if there's value for us, we'll make it work. Now they're selling themselves. And you're like, that's exactly what I want. I want you convincing yourself that this is the right thing to do. And by just being transparent and blunt, I get that from you. 
because I'm again, I'm triggering that law of reciprocity. I'm being giving, so you're going to give back and you're going to tell me what's really going on. So it feeds itself. So if you have something like that, you get to A, sound informed as a seller by noting something that's different between you and your competition. B, you're offering it up unexpectedly, which is going to trigger a social bid and a response. And then C, they're probably going to disclose something that you would have never found out anyways. And now that's part of that puzzle of like, do they have the willingness to change? Is this really a buyer or is this a prospect? Because a prospect considers things, a buyer evaluates things. I want evaluators, not consideration. So I guess one more question about implementation. You talked about it being something that we need to openly share. And there's a lot of information that I could be sharing about implementation. And so I don't want on the very first date to like sit down and be like, here's all the logistics of what our wedding is going to look like. Are you in for that? Because it's a lot of work planning a wedding. When I'm talking about implementation, what are the key points that I need to communicate with a buyer so that they feel like I have been helpful in the good way? It sounds something like this. It'd be something like, listen, Nick, this product doesn't just, it's not like a light switch. We're not going to just flip it on. It's going to work. You know, there is some setup to do this. I want to be transparent about that. So here are the things that typically are needed for implementation. There's a bit of time, there's a bit of resources, and there's a couple of players that need to be involved. It looks something like this. I'm just giving you the very general lay of the land, not into the details, not going to pull up an implementation timeline just yet and bore you with all that, but I'm just going to at least announce that there is, you know, this isn't just going to be you. You're probably going to need to ask a friend, or this isn't just going to be like a one week turnaround. This might be multiple weeks spread out and we'll do different things in that time. And I'm going to share that with you. And I'm like, have you already thought about that? Is that something that you've maybe already planned for, or is that something that you're going to need to go and talk to somebody else about? And odds are, you're going to give me now a real honest answer instead of a fake answer, because I just disclosed what it really takes to do this. I made the bid. So again, your brain's going to go, I got to respond. I got to tell him because he told me the real thing. So I need to respond in kind. And now I get to ask you hard questions. Now I've earned the right to be like, who is that person you need to go seek? What's their schedule like? Do you really think you can get this done by January? Because what I'm hearing, Nick, is that it might not. And now I get information again that 21 questions of discovery would not have gotten. One way you can tell where you're going to land in a negotiation is how much people have invested in the deal or how much time they've invested in you or what they've shown you they're willing to do prior to that negotiation. And essentially what you're doing is you're pushing on all these walls and you're trying to see which one is going to give you a little bit of pressure back. And you know, those are your real deals. And so you get to the negotiation phase. You've gotten all of these things from your social bidding, but still for some reason, someone is asking you for a 30% discount. What do you do in that moment to bring some of that stuff back without just using all of their own information against them directly. Yeah. Like the, like the Tom story of that rep and that very personal connection that the VP feels to him and how he feels he failed him. I'm a hundred percent bringing that up. I'm a hundred percent bringing that up. You know, if that VP tries to negotiate with me, I'm going to be like, first I'm going to ask what, what's compelling him negotiating and, and, and just context wise negotiations don't happen in, in, in some sort of isolated chamber, right? They're contextually related to something else. You're trying to ask for a discount. Why? 
Is it because you saw other pricing somewhere else? So you're thinking this is too high? Is it because you genuinely have a budget to stay within and you're trying to make this work? Is it because you're just trying to look good by getting a better deal? That's the popcorn pricing solves that one, right? The, for our first episode, popcorn pricing solves making them feel like a winner. You know, wherever they land on the board, you've set it up for success for yourself and them. So that part should be taken off. But if people don't know the popcorn pricing, that also will come up too. So you need to know where what's triggering the negotiation. Why do they think that this discount needs to be applied? But then once you get the context as to why, that's when I go right back into like, well, listen, I think at the end of the day, no matter what price point we land at, this was always about Tom. This is about avoiding what you had told me was a major issue that you didn't want to see happen again. And if, if, if we reach this point and you still don't think that we can address that, I wouldn't even give you this thing for a dollar. These are when I get to use all my chips and put them in and be like, I'm all in. Are you? Or did I do something wrong here and miss the mark? And again, that typically gets a very good response from people. And they'll tell me what's really happening. And it has happened in times where people are like, we don't have the budget that I thought I had. Okay, let me work with you with the budget you do. Like, you know, this lie that people say that like budget's not an objection. Like, yeah, it is. Have you ever seen how companies budget? <laughs> they really do commit to numbers. It's not a made up thing. You know, they don't have endless money. It's not true. Most of the stuff that people sell has to fall in line in some level of a budget. So it's okay if that happens. I just need to know it's real. It's so intelligent what you're doing there, where when somebody comes to you to negotiate, like one of the things we always talk about is like, stop the bleeding right away. And you're actually doing a step even before you stop the bleeding of the discounts is you're asking what is prompting you to negotiate right now? Because the answer to that question is going to inform your behavior next. If it's a budget or billing terms thing, okay, let's have a, let's have a conversation about how we can make this work. We're no longer fighting each other. We're trying to solve that specific departmental issue together. If they saw pricing somewhere else, like you have a different answer. I'm curious, like, let's say you have a really good relationship with Armand. And if I were ever selling something to him, I know it's ingrained in his DNA. He's going to ask me for a discount because it's part of his culture. He wants to get a better deal. And so if Armand says to me, look, man, I just want a better deal. I need a better deal to make this work. Like it's, it's me. How do I respond to, to sort of that negotiation tactic? So if somebody's negotiating pricing on you and they're saying something like that, like, I just want a better deal. It's like, that's on you, not them. The, you did not build the perceived value necessary. You should have maybe done decoy pricing and offered them two options. One that was an overpriced bare bones version. And then the one that they actually wanted that was only incrementally more. And now they're thinking, oh, all I have to do is put in 2K more and get everything I want. That's easy. And now you, you're, no, you're negotiating on 2K instead of the total value of the deal of 20 or 30K. But if you fail to do that, which has happened, right? It happens. You didn't do the decoy pricing. You didn't set it up. And now you're in the scenario of the person saying, I just want a better deal, right? Now I'm thinking to myself, again, this goes back to them wanting to feel like a winner. This is a personal thing. It's not professional anymore. This isn't about the company or, you know, uptime or, or, or you know, making sure that it checks the box on the integration. This is something that they want personally. Okay, let me give them that. Let me give them that but I won't give them exactly what they want. I'll tell them, look, what you're asking me for is really hard. You know, I've, I've tried throughout this process, Armand, to be really clear from day one about pricing, 
around my competition, around implementation. I've been trying to be forthcoming so that you have everything you need. And I feel a little flat-footed hearing this from you now. I want to make this work, but what you're asking for is too much. And I'm going to pause, right? I'm going to fall back on, hey, man, I've been social bidding this whole time. And all of a sudden, you're going to hit me out of left field with something. I don't think it's fair. So you tell me why you need this. Prove to me why you need this. Now it's on you to justify this to me. Make me the business case. Like we, you were talking about it earlier. Like at some point I need to switch it and I'm not selling them anymore. They need to be selling me. And if I hear a really good business reason, I'm accommodating. Sure. That makes sense. But if I don't hear a good business reason, I'm like, I don't, I don't see that working. You know, I, I have to also save face internally. So if I do something like this, what is my team going to think of me? What my manager is not expecting me to do this sort of stuff. So there's also a side to this, but I get to lean on that. I get, I have the right now to say that because I've been bidding throughout the entire sales process. I've been making them the hero and I've been playing Merlin and I have to be like, Hey, you're asking too much hero. This is not, I can't do that. Bilal, the first episode was great. The second episode was better. And the third episode has been the best of them all. And it breaks my heart, but we are running out of time. And so we got to move to the final question. Final question is this. We've talked about a ton of really good things that salespeople should be doing. And we're going to ask you about the inverse now. So the last question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople doing that you think they need to stop doing because it hurts them a lot more than it helps? Yeah, I think it goes back to that helpful seller stuff. Like, I want to be helpful. I'd love to share this with you. I'd love to do that for you. This like love word. Like, I just want to ban the word love from the vocabulary of sellers. Like, you don't love doing that stuff. That's the grinding, boring backend stuff that you don't want to do. And you certainly don't want to do it for somebody that's not going to buy. And last time I checked, most of your deals don't close, just like mine. You know, my win rate's only 20 something percent. It means the majority of what I do doesn't end up in, in, in victory. So I don't want to be doing that. So I don't, I don't have any love, you know? And I, and I, I tell my buyers that, you know, I tell my buyers like, look, putting together this proposal is going to take some time for me. I want to make sure that when it's done, you feel like everybody's ready and willing to hear it and you can bring everybody to the table. I'm not going to say, oh, I'd love to do that. You know? No, I don't. <laughs> There's no love. And it's okay to tell somebody that. That kind of bluntness really does work. Anything you want to plug before we jump off here? As always, the Death of Fluff newsletter, deathoffluff.substack.com. Check it out. A lot of good psychology tips in there, like that stuff from the Gottman Institute. That they Again, they don't teach that in your sales training, but it's really, really powerful stuff. And I am hiring. I am hiring. I, I've joined a new startup called GTM Buddy. It's a new uh, sales tech platform. It's pretty cool. And I am hiring reps in India. So if you're listening and you're, you're, you're in India, please go to my, my LinkedIn profile to see more about the job description. I will say this, by the way, I spent a lot of time on the job description. One thing that I did, guys, you might appreciate this. I went to the Sales Health Alliance who recently did um, a study on mental health and sales, and they found seven categories that um, in order of importance that matter in determining the health and productivity of a rep. And I pulled the top four that I thought were really critical, and I put them in the job description as a commitment from us to whoever takes this job. So we're really trying to to build something that is world-class that operationalizes excellence. So it's all on my profile. Folks, if you're listening to this and you have the opportunity to work with Bilal, I would say take it because he's one of the most conscientious sellers that I've ever worked with, but he's also a really, really good salesperson. And so if you want to get better, 
He's a guy to work with. There's a reason that he's our first ever three-time guest on 30 Minutes to President's Club. So everybody, hit up Bilal. Thanks for listening and stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Bilal round three include, number one, you can delight your buyer in four ways, with pricing, with competition, with weakness, and with implementation. Number two, social bidding. The more you do those things, the more prospects will share with you things that you're not supposed to know about their business. Number three, you can't convince the buying committee. However, you can pressure test how well your champion can convince the buying committee. In other words, you can suss out their real willingness to change by asking them, hey, what is that critical event you're driving towards? How are you going to help us multi-thread, et cetera? And then lastly, number four, you have emotionally charged messaging. You have things like talking about loss aversion instead of talking about all the features and benefits in your outreach. All righty, Nick, how can people help us out here? Well, there's a reason Bilal came back for round three. It's because rounds one and two were so good. I highly recommend if you have not listened to his first episode where he talked about how pricing of popcorn at the movies relates to your SaaS sales pricing. Go check that one out. And then the second one, he talked about some unexpected tips that you can delight your buyer. Like when you go to a nice hotel and they leave a mint on the pillow so you can have fresh breath. Little things that put smiles on the faces of your buyers. So check those episodes out. Everybody stick around next week for 30 Minutes to President's Club. See ya. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes.
Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Super Cadence by Influ2, which helps cut through the noise of oversaturated prospecting channels. If you want to get your prospect's attention, you got to do stuff a robot would never do. One of my favorite plays is getting warm introductions to the accounts that I'm targeting via salespeople who work at that account. Salespeople help salespeople. Another approach could be using Super Cadence to run SDR ads to put a face to the name. Now, we worked with Influ2 to put together a special toolkit on ways to humanize your outreach, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Notes.